I hope I don't go much longer than 30, 40 minutes. We only have one bathroom. <laughs> it's a mad rush to lunch. Uh, what a joy it is to, to continue to worship with you and to be able to preach the word again, to continue in the book of Numbers. Uh, what, a, what a joy it is. Let me pray, because every, every preacher needs to pray. He needs to pray that the Holy Spirit speaks uh, through him to God's people, that the preacher gets out of the way, and the Word of God may sanctify you. Not me, the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your Word, for the book of Numbers, uh, for these two chapters, chapters that are often skipped over, um, chapters that are initially looked at as boring or unedifying, but we know from your word that your word is profitable, every word. It's given by you for the growth of your disciples. So may we look at this passage with those eyes, eyes to see how we may grow in Christ, how we may follow our shepherd and his leading, that we may live well, live rightly, live in wisdom, fearing you and obeying your commands, repenting of sin and believing in the gospel. May I get out of the way. May it not be my words, but yours, Lord, that reaches your people. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 26. We'll be covering chapters 26 and 27 today. The most exciting passage of Scripture of all time, the second census of Numbers. I know it's everybody's favorite chapter of the Bible. I quote it every morning. I don't. I know that this passage, as I said in the prayer, can be looked at as boring, but it's important. It is God's Scripture still. And I think, like many things we do, it is uh, in the reading of it, in the recording of these numbers, we see a remembrance happening. Remembrance of the journey of Israel. We do a lot of acts of remembrance. We did one just moments ago with the Lord's Supper. This is an act of remembrance. Remembrance of what Christ did on the cross. Breaking, the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood to save his people. And we take that as a body of believers to remember that. To remember who we are. Our identity in Christ. Our identity with one another as his body. It's a very significant act of remembrance. One act of remembrance that we do uh, here in the States, much, very, very relatable to this text, is we take a census every 10 years. We see how things have changed over a decade. We see where this country has been and where we're going. We record who's who and what's what and where, where, and all that. Now, 2020 was a census year. I think it's going to be remembered for a bunch of other different things. But it was a census year, which is typically a big year. I'm sure you guys got uh, a note in your, in your mailbox or at the post office or at your front door, I don't know where, and you had to fill out all this information about your age, your gender, and your religion and all these things, and it records the history of the people who fill those things out. And it's not just a numbers game. It records special moments. Now, 2020 is not so much a year we really want to remember, 
but I think we should nonetheless. It's important to remember bad things as well as good things. Now, the census of the United States of America may be a little more interesting. We like to read those little facts like, ooh, 20% of all people you know, live in, I don't know, or urban areas in Chicago. I don't know, that's more than that. I'm making stuff up. You know, 89% of statistics are made up on the spot. Those are interesting tidbits. And so, but I think contrasted to that, when we come to a census in the Bible, we tend to skim over it if we don't just skip it entirely. Oh, Reuben had this many kids? Cool. Judah had this many kids? Cool. How do I pronounce that name? I have no idea. Skip. But this is important, and more than just little tidbits. I know it's repetitive, but I hope that today, as we look through this repetition, that we can see why things are repeated, and when something breaks that repetition, why that's important. Now, I'm not going to read the whole census to you this morning. That, admittedly, would be rather dull. But I hope to... I hope to hope that you, for one, can read through yourself if you haven't already. Read through the census and notice these breaks in the pattern that we're going to go over this morning. And those are the texts I'll be reading. And I think that this census, the major picture of what it reveals, it shows us a generation of people that died in sin. It brings to remembrance a lot of bad things that happened. Rebellions. Wicked people, those that did not uphold the Lord as holy. That's what the census reveals in chapter 26. Let's begin in verse 1. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar the son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, from twenty years old and upward by their fathers' houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. And Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from twenty years old and upward. As the Lord commanded Moses, the people of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were such and such. I'll stop reading there. Now this is coming immediately after, if you remember from last week, the Lord saying to Moses, Harass the Midianites. Go get after them. And so here we are. Okay, who's going to be able to fight? So let's number the men, 20 years old and older, who are able to go to war. The people are getting ready to enter into the land of Canaan, and they need to whoop butt. And so they need to know what their strength is. What are our numbers? When we go into this land, how are we going to harass the Midianites? How are we going to expel them from this promised land, this inheritance that the Lord has promised, so that we can claim it? If you remember from Numbers chapter 1, there was a census back then, too. They did much the same thing. They were about to go into the land. That place was called uh, Kadesh. They were in the land of Kadesh, about to enter into the promised land, and they sinned there. We'll get back to that in a moment. But now, they're in the plains of Moab. Remember uh, Balak and Balaam, the Moabites and the Midianites? We just had these inter- interactions with the people of Israel. And here they are in the plains of Moab, getting ready to go into the promised land Again to claim what is theirs, and so we're taking a census. So keep that frame in perspective. The people are getting ready to enter into the land, the land of promise, the land of inheritance. And so we we go on. 
I'm only going to read a, I'm going to read a little bit of the quote-unquote boring part of the census. Verse 5, Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, the sons of Reuben, of Hanak, the clan of the Hanakites, of Palu, the clan of the Paluites, of Hezron, the clan of the Hezronites, of Carmi, the clan of the Carmites. These are the clans of the Reubenites, and those listed were 43,730. That's the pattern, right? We, we could skip to verse 12, the sons of Simeons, according to their clans, and it repeats that pattern. The sons of Gad, the sons of Judah, the sons of Issachar, the sons of Zebulun, that's the pattern. It lists them by their clans, their names, and then gives the number. But look here, we have our first break in the pattern, even though the pattern just started, in verse 8 and following. And the sons of Palu, Eliab. The sons of Eliab, Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram, chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah. When they contended against the Lord, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah. When that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning. But the sons of Korah did not die. So the census, remember this big message, it reveals a generation of sinners that died in their sin. And here's the first break in the pattern of the census. We see that the census remembers those who, ref, who uh, refused Moses and Aaron, who contended against them, and in contending against them, contended against the Lord. Dathan and Abiram siding with Korah. We went over this passage just a little bit ago. It's Numbers chapter 16. Dathan and Abiram contended against Moses and Aaron, thus contending against the Lord, and now they serve as a warning. At the end of verse 10 is when the company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning. This word for warning is also used elsewhere as a, a signal post, a sign. Look here. Remember, you might see on some on uh, college campuses, like this bench dedicated to this donor, a, a, a sign that says, look, remember these people, what they have done. Well, this is a really negative signpost, a negative memorial, a warning. Don't be like these guys. They contended against the Lord. They contended against the Lord's chosen leaders. And now they're dead. They died in their sin. Be warned. Do not follow after the way of Korah. Do not follow after, follow after the way of, of Dathan and Abiram. We continue on. Let's go to verse 19, the next interruption or at least a weird input here. Verse 19 of chapter 26. The sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, and Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Judah, according to their clans, were so on and so forth. It continues the pattern. But it felt the need to mention Ur and Onan, and how they died in the land of Canaan. Do you know what passage that's from? Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38 is being brought here in Numbers 26. Why? Why bother mentioning these two guys that died, only giving like half a verse to them of how they died? And in the land of Canaan, the land that people are about to go into. What? How does this make sense? Well, if you remember the story of Genesis 38, Ur and Onan, the sons of Judah, Ur had a wife, Tamar, and he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so he died. And Judah told Anan, hey, 
Take Tamar as your wife and produce an offspring, an inheritance for your brother. And Onan sinned against the Lord, was wicked in the sight, said, I don't know, I'm not going to fight for this inheritance. I'm not going to produce an offspring for my brother. I don't care. I want what's mine. This won't be counted as my inheritance. And Onan was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Both Ur and Onan were. So we see this theme of inheritance continued. The people are about to enter into the land and claim their inheritance. Ur and Onan, uh, or Dathan and Abiram, died in, the, in their sin, not claiming their inheritance. And Ur and Onan didn't fight for their inheritance. They didn't work with the Lord. And so they were wicked in the sight of the Lord and died. So the census remembers also those who died long ago, those that <clears throat> were wicked in the sight of the Lord. We continue on to verse 33, another interruption, or at least a, an odd phrase. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons but daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Malah, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. This might seem normal in a census. So yeah, that guy had daughters. He didn't have any sons, but this is significant because sons were the rightful inheritors of the father's land, his goods, his name. And this man had no sons. So the inheritance for Zelophehad seems to be in danger. Who will inherit his land? Who will possess it? We'll get back to this Zelophehad and his daughters in chapter 27. So we'll hold off on that. But we still see inheritance in danger. This man died. What, what do we do? So much death. Dathan and Abiram, dead. Uh, uh, Ur and Onan, dead. Zelophehad, dead. No sons. Ooh. No inheritance. So the census remembers those who, uh, who refused Moses and Aaron, who contended against them, remembers those who died long ago, wicked in sight of the Lord, and it remembers those who died without sons. The census continues on through the, uh, almost all the tribes of Israel, with the exception of, of Levi. It says in verse 51, this was the list of the people of Israel, 601,730. As an aside, real quick, that number has sometimes caused some stumbling for people, thinking that that's insane. You know how many people are at the D-Day invasion? Less than 200,000 on the, in the Allied force. And Israel's fighting force is over 600,000? Now, this isn't the Bible being wrong. I want to assure you and affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. This is a Hebrew thing, a language thing, that for right now I don't think is important for the main message, but I felt the need to say it because I've known people who read this number and that was hard for them, so I felt the need to say it. So, if you want to know more about that big number and why it's so big, you can come talk to me after service, but I felt the need to mention that. But as of right now, the purpose it serves for this sermon is, hey, here's the number. We have our fighting force, right? We're ready to go fight these Midianites. We're ready to go fight these Moabites and all the lands of Canaan. 
So, verse 52, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list, but the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to lot between the larger and the smaller. This is the purpose of the census. Yet again, it's not just to number the fighting force. It's also to think about the inheritance. I know for us it might be weird because we're not necessarily people who live in a land. We're not so agriculturally minded here necessarily. Maybe some of us are. I don't know what origin you come from. If you come from a farm, I happen to come from a, a rural area, but even I wasn't raised on a farm. But these people lived in the land, and not only lived in the land, they were promised the land, the inheritance of Canaan, what was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is their land. So this is what the census is for. Then we get the the pattern continued for the Levites, how they're numbered. It mentions in verse 59, the name of Amram's wife was uh, Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt, and she bore to Amram Aaron and Moses and Miriam, their sister. Let's hold off on that real quick. Where's Aaron and Miriam right now? Go ahead. They're dead. Even Aaron and Miriam are dead. What's going to happen to Moses soon? He's going to die. These three massive, really important figures in Israel are dead or about to die. Even then, Aaron's sons, in verse 60, And to Aaron were born Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Remember where that passage is? It's in Leviticus 10. So we visited the book of Numbers. We visited Earlier in the book of Numbers, we visited the book of Genesis. We're visiting the book of Leviticus. We're dancing all over the Torah. The first five books of the Bible. And so the census is bringing up these stories for a reason. Hey, look at your history, Israel. It's full of people who are wicked and died, who are not making it to the land because of their sin. So the inheritance seems in danger. Again, just to reemphasize the point, verse. Uh, Verse 63, these were those listed by Moses and Eleazar the priest who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. Remember chapter 1, for the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of of none. The census reveals the history of Israel, that the Israel should remember this. Remember these people that sinned and died? Remember that generation? Your fathers and mothers who sinned against me? They're dead now. 
this, this generation that neither trusted in the Lord, that did not trust in the Lord's chosen leaders. How many times did they rebel against Moses and Aaron? Remember Aaron's budding staff. The Lord said, no, this, this is my leader. This is my guy. I've chosen Aaron. I've chosen Moses. And the people continue to rebel. Even after all the signs and wonders that they saw in Egypt, the crossing of the sea, the miracles, the manna, the quail, the spies report that this is a good land, Joshua and Caleb said. But they listened to the other spies that says, nah, we need to go back to Egypt. Let's pick a new leader. So the inheritance seems to be in danger. This promise. But I think this remembrance, it it, it seems so negative. It seems so ugly. And it is ugly. But as I said about 2020, I think we need to remember the ugly. I think we need to remember the sin. We need to recognize that yeah, people have fallen. I've sinned. My parents sinned. My whole family has sinned. My brothers and sisters have sinned. There have been some to fall away. We know people who have apostatized, both celebrity or familial or friends. People that have left the church. People that have fallen away who are wicked in the sight of the Lord. And that hurts. Brings sadness and, and, and anger. We feel sorrow or guilt or shame about our own sins. But this remembrance shouldn't just stay there. It should lead to other good things, really good things. It should lead to our own repentance It should lead to a striving for faithfulness. It should lead to a a trust in the Lord. It says, okay, Lord, I fear you. I see what you've done, and I trust you. And I trust the leader that you have established. So is the hope of inheritance lost due to sin? Is God's plan for his people thwarted because of this? We have time after time after time in Genesis and, and in Numbers and in Exodus and Leviticus God's people failing. They didn't get into the land. So all these promises that you said, God, are those false? Well, no. I think uh, there are a lot of explicit reminders here of other texts in in Torah, the first five books. But I think there's also implicitly here a reminder from Exodus chapter 6. There's so many verses can turn there if you'd like to. I'm just going to go ahead and start reading Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 8. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. 
Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So the Lord told his people Israel, I'm going to take you to that land. And though there are many who die in their sin and don't receive that possession, that inheritance, the Lord's plan is not thwarted by it. The Lord will accomplish what he has promised. He we remember our sin, he remembers his promise. And the Lord ensures the inheritance for the faithful. We see that in chapter 27. We'll re, we're revisiting the daughters of Zelophehad. Read with me in chapter 27, starting in verse 1. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord and the company of Korah, but died for his own sin. And he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan? Because he had no son. Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. So here we have some girls whose dad died because of sin. And what do they do? Do they mope and cry about it? Well, they approach Moses, the leader. They approach him, the Eleazar, the priest, the chiefs of the clans, the whole congregation. They take it to God's man. And they say, hey, we recognize our father's sin. We remember that. We got it. So they acknowledge their father's sin. They acknowledge the wickedness that's been done. And it might sound at first to say, hey, give it to us anyway. Right? Yeah, we're not sons, but who cares? We want the land. And it might sound arrogant. It might sound selfish. But we have confirmation in verse uh, 5 and 6 uh, and 7, they were right. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And I think what the daughters are doing and have done is that they recognize the Lord's promise. They admitted the sin of their father. They admitted that we need to fear the Lord and be holy. They recognized that all that was wrong, but they also trusted in the promise of the Lord. And that, I think, is what the Lord is saying is right. It's not a give me, give me, give me, give me. It's that, Lord, you said you have this for me. I'm ready to, I'm ready to have it. I trust you for it. Please give it. Now, it's so cool that these daughters, women, are able to come before 
the congregation to come before Moses and the leaders and ask for this. And it's not just sons that get to inherit, but the daughters too. That's cool. I think the, so often there are many who think the, the Bible hates women. But I think this and so many other verses show that the Lord cares for women as he cares for men. Now, I don't think that's the main point of this text because the, the Lord continues to make a statute. Verse 8, And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then he shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then he shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then he shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and rule as the Lord commanded Moses. So yes, we see the Lord's care for women, but I don't think that's the main point. The main point is that, hey, this family is going to get the inheritance I promised. The promise I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to his sons, to Joseph, Manasseh, and on and on and on to Zelophehad, and now his daughters. And tell you what, even if he didn't have daughters, give it to his brothers. If he doesn't have brothers, give it to this guy. It's going to stay in this family, as I said it would. The emphasis here is that the Lord ensures the inheritance. The Lord ensures that his promise will be fulfilled. The Lord is faithful even when the people aren't. The Lord is faithful even when the people aren't. Now, we mentioned already that this, this leader, the daughters go to Moses, he's about to die. And how many times in the book of Numbers have we seen Moses intercede on behalf of the people in Exodus and even Leviticus, and now Numbers, Moses often cries out to the Lord, Lord, don't wipe out your people. Please, on behalf of your name, keep them alive. Have mercy. Moses interceded on behalf of them so many times. And this pattern of sin, all the way back from Genesis with uh, Ur and Onan, into Leviticus with Nadab and Abihu, with the people, with the spies about to go into the land, they said, no, no, we're going to go back to Egypt. Even with Aaron and Miriam. The people now, if they don't have intercession, if they don't have a leader, the risk of them falling away is inevitable. They're going to continue in this pattern of sin. And on and on and on. And Moses recognizes this. Let's read in verse 12 from chapter 27. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you've seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, where the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. Remember, another story to remember. Remember your sin. Moses remembers. Moses knows. And he realizes the importance of a leader for Israel. He knows that they're going to inherit the land. He knows that 
if, he doesn't, if they don't have a leader, they're going to fall into sin again. So Moses once more intercedes on their behalf. Moses, in verse 15, spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. They need a shepherd. These sheep need a rod to smack him in the hind ends, like, hey, get back in line. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Do not follow after the way of Korah. Do not offer strange fire as Nadab and Abihu did. Love his word. Obey him. They need a leader to guide them like that. So the Lord, what does he do? He provides one. The Lord hears Moses' cry and ensures the inheritance through his chosen leader. It was Moses, but now it will be Joshua. Verse 18, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses, Joshua, the Lord's chosen leader. There are two significant things that I've noticed about Joshua. One, he has the Spirit. A man in whom is the Spirit, says verse 18. In the Old Testament, the Spirit's anointing, is one, who had, one whom had the Spirit of God with him or in him was one anointed for a special task. One anointed for the proclamation of God's word. One anointed for kingship. One anointed for service to God. And here Joshua has the Spirit with him, within him. So Joshua is destined to do a great task for the Lord. Empowered by the Lord. Chosen by the Lord. Not perfect. But having the Spirit. The second thing noticed about Joshua is that not only does he have the Spirit within him, but he's invested with authority. Verse 20, you shall invest him with some of your authority. Now, is this authority to be, be bossy? Just to have the power? No, it's authority with a purpose. That all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey, a.k.a. not do what they've done since Genesis. This leader is meant to guide them into obedience. Empowered by the Spirit, Joshua is to show them how they ought to live. Live this way. Now, Israel is, uh, we, often, we often look to them as pictures of ourselves, and I think that's appropriate. We need a shepherd 
too. Without a shepherd, we are sheep who are lost, who will be eaten by wolves, dying in the wilderness, dying in our sin. Now, if you didn't know what the name Joshua means, Joshua means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. You know who else had the name uh, Joshua, at least in, in Hebrew? Jesus. In Greek, his name is Jesus. Hence we say Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. Joshua. The Lord saves. The great shepherd who comes to shepherd his people perfectly. The sinless one. Anointed by the Spirit at his baptism for a special task. To die on the cross. To be be risen and to ascend into heaven. He has authority over sin and death that his people may learn obedience. Our otherwise dead hearts can only live through the work of Christ. We need a shepherd. We often compare ourselves to the Israelites. Indeed, I would be Korah I would be Nadab and Abihu. I would be Dathan. Sounds like Nathan. (laughs) I would be them if not for Christ. I would die in the wilderness. You would die in the wilderness without an inheritance, without a possession, without the blessings of God, without life, if it were not for Christ, our shepherd, God's chosen man, God himself. Trust in the Lord. Trust in Jesus, our shepherd. I think we also need to trust his his under-shepherds too. Now Moses and Joshua, they weren't perfect. No one's perfect but God alone. But God does appoint Moses and he does appoint Joshua. He appointed Aaron, and he appointed Eleazar. I believe he appoints us pastors and elders in our churches today. Pastor Lucas, Aaron, Bill, Andy. I'm missing one, am I? (laughs) These under-shepherds who lead us in the ministry of the Word and of prayer. Lest we disobey I believe that our elders and our pastor has been um, invested with the authority from God and from the church not to be bossy, not to inflict upon us unreasonable tasks, but to lead us into obedience, to lead us to the shepherd, Jesus Christ. So we need this discipline. We need discipline. We need teaching. We need each other. We need to remember our sin, repent of it, and look to the Lord who ensures an inheritance far greater than the land of Canaan, 
far greater than a, a large bank account, far greater than happy emotions from day to day, but an inheritance with Christ, co-heirs with Christ, the presence of God, the new heavens, the new earth. So though we would die wandering in the wilderness, wandering in sin, if not, if not for Christ, Indeed, if you do not repent and submit yourself to His shepherding, you will be lost. But thanks be to God that we have Christ. Hallelujah! All we have is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we um, look to You. Lord, we remember the sins of the people of Israel. Remember our own sins the sins that we've seen so clearly from people we know and have loved. Or we take that, may we look at that as a warning to obey. But Lord, without Christ, we cannot obey on our own. Let us look to Christ, our shepherd, for life, for obedience, for the inheritance that we get to share together. Submitting ourselves to his rule, to his shepherding, submitting ourselves to the church, that we may be guided together in your truth. It's in the name of Jesus, our shepherd, that I pray. Amen.